God's kindness and God's love could be seen in a myriad of ways. But the full, visible, personal manifestation of the grace of God, the kindness of God, the love of God, came in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. He was compassion. He was pity. He was love. He was kindness. He was goodness in human form. He was the eternal God made visible. And all of the Father's divine attributes that caused him to love sinners were made visible in the life of Christ. Welcome to Graceful Truth, the weekly radio program originating from the pulpit teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church, located here in Redwood City, revealing God's grace through God's truth. Our time together today will take us to Titus chapter 3, as well as a few other passages looking at the amazing aspects of God's grace. There are seven aspects to God saving us, and we'll take a look at each of them today, all seven, as we focus our attention again on Titus chapter 3. When Grace Appeared is the title of our message. From all of us here at Grace Bible Church, Merry Christmas. It's our hope and prayer that today's broadcast reminds you again of this amazing incarnation of Christ. Here now with today's edition of Graceful Truth, Pastor Steve Converse. There's seven aspects to God saving us. There's, there's kind of these seven statements that flow around the statement, He saved us in our text. And here they are. First of all, and this forms one long sentence if you look at it. It just kind of, he names them right after one another. First of all, he saved us, number one, by his kindness. Verse four, but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. See, it was kindness that caused God to affect this saving plan. Because God is kind. I don't, I don't know how you view your God. But the God of the Bible is a kind God. What do we mean by that? The word literally means goodness of heart. I mean, we've said that about people. Oh, that guy's got a good heart. Oh, that girl, she's just got a good heart, sweetheart. Well, that's totally the opposite of what the Bible says about your heart. The Bible says your heart is wicked and desperately evil. That's what the Bible says. I bet bet you this morning, if you could look up here and see what's in my heart, you would yank me off this platform just as, you know, you'd say, no way, we can't have somebody like that preaching up there. He's got a wicked heart. But I could also look out at you. (laughs) Say, why am I preaching to these people? Goes both ways. But God is good. He's inherently good. He's inherently kind. It means that he has a concern in his heart about people in misery. In Luke, for example, chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus says this, Love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And listen to this. Here's what he says. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. That's the very essence of the attribute of God, is kindness. He's a kind God. Even to the point that he's kind to ungrateful and evil men, the Bible says. See, it's within God's nature to be kind. It's within God's nature to be patient with undeserving sinners. It's within the nature of God to be, un, to be, to be, to be loving and kind toward ungrateful sinners. He's patient. He's forbearing. He's good. The Bible even says that he lets the rain fall on the just and the unjust. Our area here would be in a world of hurt if God changed that. <laughs> said, I'm only going to let the rain fall on those who are just. I mean, we think we're in a drought now. I mean, this Bay Area would be drier than a bone. First Timothy 4.10 says, Delivering them from the imminent, immediate death and damnation, he saves all men. He saves them from that. 
Do you know that at the first time that we thought a evil deed or the first time that we had the capacity to sin in any way, God would be totally righteous, totally just in just saying, you know what, your life is gone. That one little sin. But he doesn't do that. He's kind. Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? You think you found God on your own? Hello? I don't think so. God led you to himself. Because God is good. God is kind. He's patient. He's forbearing. In order that men might have time to repent. Chapter 5 of Romans, Paul says, Wherever sin abounds, what abounds more? Grace. It's reflection of the kindness of God. Romans chapter 11, verse 22 says, Behold the kindness and severity of God to those who fell severity, but to you, God's kindness. God is kind. God is good. He has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. The Bible says that He's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. He would have all men to be saved. That reflects His kind heart towards sinners and those who are His unworthy enemies. See, it's this very component in the eternal being of God that moved, uh, moved God to save us in the first place. And that's contrary to everything they knew about the gods that man created back then. Because basically they would create gods in their own image. They would create their own gods and they would worship their own gods. But more than not, they were not kind gods. They were to be feared. They were very evil gods on occasion. Our God is not. He's a kind God. He's a good God. John Calvin wrote this, God will never find in us anything which he ought to love. Chew on that one for a while. God will never find anything in us which he ought to love. But he is kind, and his kindness reaches out to unworthy sinners. He saved us by his kindness. The whole thing is initiated in this uninfluenced and sovereign kindness of God. Secondly, in Titus 3, we say that he, you see here that he saved us by his love. Verse 4 says, but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind. He loves mankind. You hear it all the time. God loves you. God loves you. It's kind of this very broad, sweeping, far-reaching, generic term. The word love here is kind of an interesting word in the original language. Philanthropia. We get the word philanthropy from it. It means to have pity, compassion, eagerness to deliver from pain or distress because of strong affection. It's all driven by this strong affection. It doesn't have some kind of self-serving component in it. What am I going to get out of this deal? Nothing like that at all. It's not pity for the wrong reason. It's pity out of strong affection because God is kind. He's kind toward the ungrateful and evil men. As Jesus said, and his kindness causes him to have this strong affection out of which he wants to act in pity and compassion. See, there's a God in glory who is perfectly holy. And here in the world is fallen man and, and it's God's nature to long to be kind to fallen man, to strive to as long as he can with fallen man so that he can have this chance to repent of his sins. And out of that kindness flows God's philanthropy, God's pity, God's compassion. He has an affection to touch a miserable life and make it pure, to make it better. We find the word used in Acts 28. You remember where they had come along and they were basically shipwrecked. And God in his mercy spared the 
the, the crew there with Paul, and they were able to swim ashore on some planks and whatnot. And it says when they got ashore on the island of Malta, verse 2 of, of Acts 28, it says the natives showed us extraordinary kindness. Here they are, they're ringing wet. They just came out of this horrible storm. The boat just totally smashed apart. All the souls, by God's grace, were up on the shore, but they had no food. They had no resources. They were probably cold. The rain's going on. The storm's still going. And these natives showed them what it says in the New American Standard. I like this. It says extraordinary kindness. They took them in. They fed them. They warmed them. They had a fire. They clothed them. The literal Greek says this, and the barbarians showed us not the ordinary love. That's philanthropia. Philanthropy. It's love that's not just an emotion. It reaches out with a strong affection to have pity and compassion. It's translated in the 27th chapter of Acts by the word consideration which takes really the, it from a feeling to an action. So God is in his nature. He's good. He's kind. And all you have to do is look around our world and you see that. I mean, do you ever think how beautiful a place we live in here in the Bay Area? I mean, I hopped on my motorcycle last night just as the sun was going down, just in some sweats and a T-shirt, and I had to go to the store. And I'm just driving around. I'm thinking, man, this is such a beautiful place to live. And the sun just kind of disappeared behind the hills. It's beautiful. Because God is glorious. God is kind. He's good. Lamentations 3.22 says that his loving kindness is a, a daily gift from God. His mercies are new every morning. His loving kindness extends day to day. Great is thy faithfulness. But you really want to read about the kindness of God. You can do this on your own time. You can turn to Luke, not now, but Luke 15 and read about the prodigal son. And you read about how God's love is pictured in the father reaching out to a wayward son. That's the kind of heart that God wants us to have. In verse chapter 2 of, of uh, verse 11 of chapter 2, it says, When the grace of God appeared, that's a reference to the incarnation. That's a reference to the birth of Christ. It isn't that it's never appeared before. God's kindness and God's love could be seen in a myriad of ways. But the full, visible, personal manifestation of the grace of God, the kindness of God, the love of God, came in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. He was compassion. He was pity. He was love. He was kindness. He was goodness in human form. He was the eternal God made visible. And all of the Father's divine attributes that caused him to love sinners were made visible in the life of Christ. If you ever wonder whether God loves sinners, all you have to do is look at the life of Jesus Christ. And you see him weeping over them. You see him constantly reaching out to them. When he appeared, kindness and love were incarnate. And it says he saved us because we couldn't rescue ourselves. It was the kindness of God and the love of God that appeared in Christ that started that rescue operation. I'll just say this. I mean, that appearance historically happened. We all know it. That's why we celebrate Christmas. But you know what? It doesn't mean anything to you other than maybe some fond memories unless it, it takes root in your heart. Unless you personally cry out to God, God, save me. Be merciful to me, a sinner. That's what he's referring to in verse 4, is that incarnation, that the kindness of God, the love of God appeared, being made visible in Christ. But that appearance is lost to those who never put their faith in him personally. So salvation is by kindness, it's by love. Thirdly, he saved us by mercy. Not only by his kindness, by his love, but now we move on to mercy. His kindness caused him to feel strong affection. And his strong affection caused this compassion and pity, which caused him to be merciful to us. And so you look at verse 5 in our text. It says, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to what? His mercy. I mean, mercy is an incredible word. 
It's different from grace. And I gave you a little outline there, and there's some differences there that you can look at. Grace relates to guilt, but mercy relates to misery. Grace relates to the state of the sinner before God the judge. Mercy relates to the condition of the sinner in his sin. Grace is a, you might call it a judicial concept that forgives the crime. But mercy is a compassionate concept that helps the criminal recover. See, mercy looks at misery, but grace looks at the guilt. And here he's talking about mercy. And he says that it was God's mercy he saved us. Not of what because of what we've done in righteousness. Very clear there. Salvation is not by works of righteousness. Let's just be real clear. Beloved, you make no contrib- contribution to your salvation whatsoever. None. Zip. Zero. You have no capacity to make any contribution. I, I just crack up sometimes when I hear people, you know, oh, let me share, you know, could you share your testimony? Oh, yeah, you know. Well, then I found God. No, you didn't. The truth be told, you weren't even looking for God. There's none that seeks God. Matter of fact, you didn't even know you were lost. Let's just be honest. Did you walk around before your salvation? I know I didn't going, gee, I'm just so lost. I never didn't have a clue. I was busy doing all my religious stuff, thinking that somehow that was going to earn favor with God. In no way can you earn your salvation. In no way do you deserve your salvation. In no way do you contribute to it. Your rescue and your transformation and your deliverance from sin and death and hell comes from God and God alone. That's it. That's the only source. You remember Paul, before he was converted, he spent most of his life, he spent a lot of it trying to kill Christians because he was religious and Jewish and figured, hey, these people are threatening my way of life. Turn over to Philippians chapter 2. Because Paul here just kind of gives us information about where he was before he came to Christ. He was trying to purchase his salvation. He was trying to earn it. Philippians chapter 3, verse 3. Look at this. For we are the circumcision who worship God in spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. And then in verse 4, here's his list. He says, basically here in verse 4, I also may have confidence in the flesh. If anybody should have confidence in the flesh, it should be me. That's what he's saying. If anyone else thinks that he have confidence in the flesh, I more so. And here's his list. Verse 5. Circumcised the eighth day, the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. What's he saying here? He's saying, you know what? I was a traditional Orthodox Jew. And I chose to become a Pharisee because I wanted to take it to the nth degree. I wanted to go as far as I could with this thing. And then he says, all those things, the human base of righteousness in my life, I counted one time, they were gained to me, but now I count it loss for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus, my Savior. I count it as manure. I count it as rubbish, as garbage, trash, filth. doesn't mean anything to him anymore. The best of the deeds that I have done were nothing but trash. Do you ever think about that? I mean, that's one of the verses that spoke to my heart when I first became a Christian. Because I gave a list of things that, you know, hey, oh, I do this, I do that, I don't do that. I, you know, and, and the pastor just kept on saying, the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He just kept on saying that. All, 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 that means you, Steve. And I had to come to terms and say, you know what, all this stuff? I mean, I've gone to Mass every day of my life almost. And, you know, done, done this and, and it's all for naught? Yeah, doesn't mean anything to God. I mean, when they had to pull me out of school because I was an altar boy and had to go down here and, and maybe be part of a funeral or a mass for somebody, that doesn't, that, you know, I want to be with my friends. I didn't want to go to church, but I did it. Doesn't mean anything. 
Wow. He says, I threw it all aside for the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, whom I received a righteousness. Look at this. Not my own on the basis of works, but the righteousness of God. See, that's mercy. We deserve wrath, beloved, but we receive what? Salvation. Why? Because God is kind. God has compassion. He has his pitiful love, which is expressed in mercy toward us as miserable sinners. In Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, he says, I thank Jesus Christ, our Lord, who strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, but I was shown mercy. That's how it happens. God was merciful to undeserved, unearned. It, it's, it's not something that can be influenced. It's spontaneous mercy that expresses God's amazing kindness and God's amazing love towards sinners, even though he's perfectly holy. <laughs> Sovereign mercy then led God to kindly and lovingly grant forgiveness and eternal glory to pitiful transgressors like you and I. And that's what it means when he says he saved us by his kindness by his love, by his mercy. Fourthly, by his regeneration. Verse 5 says, He saved us not on a basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration. The word regeneration means to be born again. It means to receive new life. Only God can give us that. I mean, sure, scientists are out there trying to create life and all this stuff, you know, but only God can create life. They may be able to alter it a little bit, but only God can create life. You've all heard the story of the guy, the scientist who's going to challenge God and he's going to create life and, you know, he has this one-on-one with God and, yeah, okay, well, go, go, to, go to work. All right, I'll go do it. You know, so he reaches down to pick up a pail of dirt. God taps him on the shoulder and says, hey, bud, you go get your own dirt. You know, you, you can't start from nothing. Regeneration, being born again. That's what Nicodemus talked about in John 3. You must be born from above, he said to Nicodemus, born again. Only God can do that. Here's a sinner dead in trespass and sin, the Bible says, totally hopeless. He can't pick himself up. He can't rescue himself. God comes from outside and regenerates him, gives him new life. In that process, cleanses the old life so that regeneration, the regeneration is called washing, that old life which was filthy and vile and the dead corpse, it's washed and it's regenerated and it's, it's brand new. Paul talks about being crucified with Christ in Galatians 2.20. He says, nevertheless, I live. That's the resurrection life. Romans 6, he says, we were buried with Christ in his death, but we rise to walk in newness of life. In John 3 and 1 John 2, 3, 4, and 5, they all talk about regeneration. They talk about new life. They talk about being born again, being cleansed, being washed. See, it's not living your life and then adding God to the mix. That's not what Christianity is. That's not what salvation is. Salvation is coming to God for broke, saying, you know what? I don't have anything. I don't have nothing here, God, but I need you. Be merciful to me, a sinner. I don't even know why you would do that, God. But your Bible says, your word says that you will. It's that brokenness of the heart that God will hear. 1 Peter 1.23 says that we are born again through the living and abiding word of God. It's the word of God that gives us life through the Spirit. Sometimes people ask, you know, hey, I have this unsafe friend or relative, and, you know, I want to share share the gospel with them. How, How do I do it? You know, I always come back to the same thing. Share the word of God. If you don't do anything else, share the word of God somehow with them. Because that's the only thing that has any power. So he saved us by his kindness, his love, his mercy, his regeneration. Five, quickly, by his spirit. 
by his spirit. The end of verse five says that our salvation, he saved us by the renewing of by the spirit. Salvation demonstrated his kindness, his love, his mercy. It also demonstrated the power to give us life, to wash us and regenerate. And it also demonstrated the Holy Spirit and his power of renewal. That's kind of the next logical step here in the process. The effect of regeneration is new life. And when that new life emerges out of new birth, which is affected by the word of God and the spirit, the Holy Spirit is the one who renews us. And it's a radical renewal. Second Corinthians 5.17 says, if any man be in Christ, he is a what? New creation. Paul says, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which you have of God? That you're not your own, that you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's? We are whole new creations, walking in newness of life. Some people say, well, I don't know if I'm saved. Well, you know what? Have you seen new birth in your life? Or is it same as usual, same old stuff? Because we can be moral. We can live a moral life. We can do okay in that area. That doesn't mean you're saved. That just means you may be a good person, a moral person. At least as moral as you, you're trying to be. Your heart's still desperately wicked. Ephesians 3.20 says that he can do exceedingly abundantly above all we can ask or think according to his power that's work in, worked at work in us, his Holy Spirit. I mean, that just amazes me that God put his Holy Spirit within us as a deposit it secures you in Christ. So if you're in Christ and you're really saved, think about the fact that God put a security deposit down on you. And it would go against his very nature to, to negate that deposit. He wouldn't give up on that deposit. He's going to save you. There's no turning back. That's where we get the idea of the perseverance of the saints. It's, it's God persevering in us that allows us to persevere in our faith. It's not us on our own persevering. We don't have that kind of power. Who do we think we are? Number six, he saved us by his son. All this says, through Jesus Christ, our Savior. He saved us by mercy. He saved us by the washing of regeneration. He saved us by the renewing of the Spirit. And he also saved us through his son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. I mean, if we didn't have this one, let's just go home, right? I mean, if we didn't have Jesus Christ, we don't have nothing. Take all the lights down, you know, forget all the shopping, nothing. Even in the secular world, nothing. I mean, every time you sign a check, you're validating the birth of Christ when you date it. Do you ever think of that? It's amazing. You wouldn't go anywhere without this. Jesus came to pay the price for sin and conquer death. And it was God's predetermined plan that to have Christ crucified. That was part of his eternal covenant with Christ. Remember, the Father made a covenant to give the Son a redeemed humanity as an expression of the Father's love. And he said to the son, you know what? I want to give you a redeemed humanity so that forever and ever and ever in glory, they will never cease to praise and worship you. But you have to do one thing for me. You have to go and you have to die. You have to pay the price for their sins because they can't do it. And lastly, we're saved by his grace. Verse 7, that being justified by his grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Remember, grace deals with our guilt. Grace says you are pardoned. You are forgiven because of the sacrifice of Christ. Grace takes the righteousness of God and imputes it, puts it upon you, puts it in your account, declaring you righteous and just in God's eyes because Christ has made a satisfactory atonement, sacrifice for your sins. He paid the price and therefore our sins are removed. Justice is fully satisfied. We're justified by His grace. Grace is basically giving us what we don't deserve. And when God says He saved us, we don't deserve that. 
And the minute we begin to think we do, we better check our heart. We don't deserve to be forgiven. We don't deserve to have our sin removed. We don't deserve to be imputed with the righteousness of God. We don't even deserve to be just before God. We don't deserve to come into His presence. We don't deserve heaven. But grace gives us all that and more. Because God is satisfied with Christ. Well, there you have it, all seven aspects of God saving us. He saved us by his kindness. He saved us by his love, by his mercy, and by his regeneration. He saved us by his spirit, and by his son, and by his grace. This has been Graceful Truth, the ministry of Grace Bible Church, located here in Redwood City. It's our prayer here at Graceful Truth that God would reveal his grace to your hearts through the teaching of his word each week. And we trust you're currently involved in a Bible teaching church in your area. If not, we would love to have you come and visit us here at Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. We meet each Sunday morning for our praise and worship service at 10 a.m. We offer nursery care and Sunday school classes for our children up to grade five. If you would like to encourage us here at the Graceful Truth Program, please give us a call at Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. Here's our phone number, 650-366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. Or you can visit us online at gracefultruth.org. A lot of information there about us and who we are. You can take advantage of some of the downloads available, including some of the outlines for these messages that you hear weekly on Graceful Truth. Again, that's gracefultruth.org, or give us a call at 650-366-9923. Thank you for joining us today. We trust you'll have a blessed week. And from all of us at Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City, Merry Christmas. Until next week, God bless. Yeah.